Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. Today, we're going to talk about really interesting topics. Um, we're going to talk about whether inflation is good or bad for multifamily. We're also going to touch on office foreclosures, and you've probably been hearing that. It's all over the news. And then lastly, we're going to talk about um, another real estate topic. Uh, we're going to actually talk about VC and angel investing. Um, so we have a great show today, and I hope you're going to join me. Let's get ready to scale. everyone. Again, I'm Emily Perlman, CEO and founder of Lulay Capital. We're a private equity real estate firm specializing in multifamily investments across the U.S. With me, I have Ryan Rosleski from Acquisitions and Jeanette Robinson from Investor Relations. And every once in a while, we record this trio podcast um, and we share, um, you know, uh, some of the topics that we're talking about in the office. Um, and the idea came to us because we essentially said, you know, these are really good conversation, conversations, interesting conversations. And maybe we should record, you know, some of the topics we're talking about. So investors um, and partners can, you know, listen and colleagues can listen, uh, you know, listen in. Um, and so, you know, I want to uh, start with um, what's on everyone's mind today, and that is inflation. So inflation is still, you know, not great, um, despite the Fed's um you know, attempts to control it. And when you think about inflation, I think most investors is kind of, um, I'm not going to say misconception, but most investors see inflation as something that is bad for multifamily and for many assets, it is not good. Um, but we wanted to share a bit of a different, you know, perspective. Um, and I can share, you know, and, and maybe I actually want to kick it off to uh, Ryan, uh, you know, as someone who is very close to acquisitions, underwriting, valuing assets, um, you know, kind of what are your thoughts about inflation and how, you know, do you see it impacting multifamily um, and real estate in general right now? Yeah, it's, it's a timely conversation because recently the Fed's in, in September announced that they're going to pause their rate hike for, for this quarter, uh, but they do expect another rate hike for, for the end of this year at some point in time. And there's also been indication that they were, we're going to be higher for longer. So some of the uh, projected rate cuts going into 2024 are not going to be as extensive for, from what we kind of heard from the feds most recently, but from, from an inflationary and, and underwriting perspective is, you know, inflation's never good, whether it's from the consumer or whether it's being absorbed by a, a business, uh, the, the rising cost of goods and services is, is never typically a good thing. Although wages are increasing and in, in keeping up with the, the pace of inflation. But the, the way I look at it is that there's negatives and there's positives. So in respect to multifamily specifically. So some of the negatives are high interest rates in a heavily capital intensive industry that's that's heavily reliant on leverage to maximize returns is always difficult. So there's headwinds in, in the capital markets. And, and to your point, it, it does have a destructive impact on values. So declining asset values because cap rates are expanding with interest rates 
And then also the the increasing construction costs is, is a big thing, specifically for, for value add class B operators, uh, because your, your CapEx budgets, depending on the unit count, can be two to four million dollars. And if you don't have contingency funds in there and the rising cost of labor and materials um, can, can drastically impact your pro forma. But um, and not only on the CapEx side and, and just in operating expenses, you're, you're looking at. So think of your variables, your payroll, your turnover, service contracts. R&M, it accounts for 12% roughly of your income. Um, in an inflationary environment, you're, you're increasing your, your operating costs, which flows right down to the bottom line. However, a good thing, I'll kind of pivot over to some of the positives of inflation, specifically as it relates to multifamily, is those higher operating costs are, are essentially passed through to residents in the form of rent growth. So we, we are able to pass on those higher costs through the form of rent growth. And ultimately, because expenses account for roughly 50% of your income, you're, if, if your revenue grows 5% and your expenses grow 5%, you're still growing your bottom line NOI by 5%. Where, where it becomes more difficult is if your operating expense increase more than your revenue, let's say double your revenue, that's where you're breaking even from a year over year perspective. Um, but a, another positive thing is the widening affordability gap. So as interest rates rise, it, it fuels renter demand because the, the affordability of homeownership is, is essentially out of reach. Um, so increasing demand for rental housing is definitely a positive. And then another thing from, from a lease term perspective, unlike other asset classes like commercial, industrial, the typical lease length is 10 to 12 months. So ultimately, multifamily owner operators are able to reset their rates and react to the economic conditions um, once a year. So that, that's obviously a positive. Um, and then there's there's intrinsic value from owning a physical asset that appreciates over the long term and generates cash flow through the hold. So um, th those are some of the, the positive and negative things from an underwriting perspective and when you're actually looking at the economics of inflation and the impact on multifamily. Yeah, I think you did a great job, you know, summing up the kind of pros and cons. And I want to touch on something, you know, one of the things that you've mentioned is that the CapEx, the capital expenditure, um, you know, the costs are increasing. Um, we, we definitely see uh, material, you know, costs are rising, maybe not as as um, sharply as it, back in 2020, where everything, you know, kind of really, uh, you know, kind of went out of control in terms of pricing in the market. Um but you know another positive thing to it is um, if it costs you more to renovate an apartment it also costs more to build you know an, an apartment complex from the grounds up and so we've seen across the board um, a lower demand for new multifamily um, assets so the number of um, uh, permits has gone down in almost all markets because it's you know it really changed the economics and and um, the the profitability on those um, you know assets and so um, in that sense it's actually you know the the positive thing is that we have as you know operators that buy existing multifamily assets that are 10 15 20 years old it there's um, less competition. So we, we don't need to compete with um, a rising number of new uh, constructed buildings um, and apartment complexes because it doesn't make sense for many um, developers to start developing, um, you know, those assets. And so that's another thing 
kind of remember that the, it, it's essentially the market is a, is shrinking a bit, meaning there's less um, new, you know, deliveries of new um, assets that can compete with your asset. Usually, let's say you own an asset that is 1997 built or 2005 built. It's a beautiful asset. And right across the street, there's a brand new building and they're just starting to lease out. This is the most challenging time because they're offering very high concessions. They need to fill up the units. And sometimes their rent can be very uh, comparable to yours. And of course, if someone you know is looking at two assets, they're for the same amount, they're going to go with the newer assets. But once they're stabilized, then they, the uh, rents go up and you always want to have a healthy 300 to $500 delta. So you're going to get those who just you know, want to save some money. Um, and so you can provide that, um, you know, that that benefit to them. But if you don't need to deal with many of those new construction, you know, constructions, because the rise in um, labor costs and materials, because as a direct um, result of rising interest rates, and this is another, you know, it's actually a way to benefit um, multifamily, um, or at least, you know, we're looking at the the glass, you know, half full, because it's, it's not all bad. It's not all good. I agree. It's more negative than positive, but there are some positive positives to, uh, in, you know, increasing. Um, yeah. Ellie, that, that's a great point. So I, I can't believe I even overlooked that. It's the, the rising cost of construction and new home delivery, to your point, permits are being pulled off the shelf left and right. So what it does, it ultimately fuels long-term growth for the multifamily industry because it's going to fuel rent growth and it's going to lower vacancy rates in an already undersupplied market. So if, if construction lending is, is nearly non-existent because of the rates are so high, it, it's only going to fuel growth 18 to 24 to 36 months from that time period because of that lag. And in fact, it's funny you brought up the, the lease ups. We looked at a deal yesterday that we were going to st- we were going to speak about tomorrow. Um, all, all developers, they make their money on the, the lease up. That's what it comes down to. So they're incentivized to lease up as quickly as possible, sell the rent roll as is and, and get out and recycle the capital and build something else. So what we found yesterday, there was a deal we looked at that um, was recently delivered and, and the lease up was tremendously successful. And, and I started digging into further because it, it didn't have any concessions. So when I say successful, they were leasing five to six percent of inventory per month and they leased up in about nine to ten months it was only 170 units give or take uh, but no concessions they weren't offering free rent so it supported the strength in the the market but then that's where things didn't really add up so i started to pull the rent roll started to look at rent comps and they leased up so quickly because rents were materially discounted from um what what the market is is offering and there was a lot of new product in in the last two three years delivered that have rents 150 to 200 higher on on each unit type so um there's a tremendous value add there so as developers are are trying to incentivize their their staff to lease up as quick as possible so they can get out of their construction loan um it only benefits groups like us that are that are buying these stabilized properties yeah yeah and that's what i call an opportunity that's uh, that's that's an interesting uh, you know way of looking at a deal. Um, Jeanette, you want to share with us what you're hearing from investors? Um, are they you know concerned about inflation and and um, how multifamily you know how they see multifamily investments uh, today? Um, you know in 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 the environment, the really interesting uh, environment we're we're in today. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think it's really good 
that you guys are having this high level discussion because I think it's very easy sometimes for investors to get focused on just current market conditions and not see the bigger picture and the bigger overall impact for multifamily investment as an industry as a whole. So both of you were touching on some really important points that investors, I think, will be comforted to hear, understanding that in the big picture of things, there's a lot of opportunity that's coming our way. And these factors that seem very negative in the market today are actually long term going to provide some additional benefits for multifamily investors. So, you know, yes, investors get a little bit nervous. They want to know, hey, how are we doing on our CapEx budgets? You know, is this going to impact our renovation plans? Um, you know, are our properties going to struggle? You know, but the reality, you know, to touch on what Ryan said, too, is that there's a lot of benefits to it. And the reality is, is this only continues to reinforce basically that it's going to diminish a lot of interest in people becoming homeowners in the market. It's going to make it almost even harder for them to do so. So it just drives people right back to multifamily. And so even though these negative economic conditions are present, there are to, they are to our benefit, uh, candidly. So, you know, yeah, investors are a little bit nervous, but I think that as long as we remain focused on the big picture, that's where the opportunity is. And that's the, the mindset, right, that we need to have when we're looking at current market conditions versus the overall return over the next, you know, two years, three years, five years, 10 years. Um, so, Jeanette, when you say investors are nervous, what what percentage of investors do you see being nervous? And, and is it the the um, those, you know, the family offices or those who are writing million dollars in checks and above or those who are relatively new to the investment world of real estate multifamily, those who usually come at the lower end, um, you know, 50 or $100,000? Like, what do you see? Yeah. So, and no, it's very interesting. So the family offices, the really seasoned investors that have been through multiple cycles, you know, throughout, you know, their 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of investing, they are actually like, oh, I'm not worried about this at all. And they're still being very bullish. It's for, you know, multifamily investment investing has become a lot more popular um, and a lot more people have become aware of it in just the last, you know, really three to five years, if you will. So there's a lot of younger investors, if you will, that have never gone through different market cycles before. And so it's those investors that are, you know, anxious and, and a little bit nervous. And it's fine to do so. You know, I, it's, you know, again, I mean, this is their savings. This is their first time really getting into investing. They're trying to grow it. Um, but, you know, hopefully rest assured, uh, you know, to those in that boat that the more seasoned investors, they are a great example to look at and understand, OK, how should I be reacting in this moment? How should I feel right now? And if the very experienced investors are not concerned or, you know, actually even optimistic about it, I think that's a really good reinforcement that we can feel the same way. Yeah, yeah Jenna, it, it's timely that you mentioned that, too, because um, family office is inflation. So all the family office reports have recently been delivered for 2023 and, and from from RBS, UBS, Goldman Sachs, Blackstone and the, the topic compared to last year. So the family offices in 2022 cited their greatest concern or risk in any type of investments across their portfolio was inflation. In 2023, that fell behind geopolitical concerns. So it just goes to show exactly what you just said is as you speak with these investors in, in these larger institutional type of family offices, um, they're, they're not so concerned about the transitory inflationary environment. They're, they have bigger fish to fry this year. And it coincides exactly with what you just said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, you know, when we 
um, presented new investments to investors starting two years ago um, and or three years ago when we started to shift from an 8% PREF to 7 to 6 because the, the environment was changing. So, you know, assets that uh, we were buying five or six years ago um, could still, um, at least from an underwriting perspective, generate you know, seven, eight percent cash on cash. And we were dialing back because we were conservative and we said, this is what we see in the market. I actually remember getting uh, some feedback uh, from investors who said, you know, other sponsors are showing seven or eight, you're showing, you know, six. And, and we said, this is where the market is. We are underwriting to, um, to worsening market conditions in the next, you know, few years. And, um, and surely, you know, other sponsors were where we were, we were just a little bit, you know, um, ahead of um, everyone else or of, of most of our uh, competitors and colleagues. Um, and now the conversation is very different. It's not how much is it? Is it, you know, eight or seven or 6% pref? Um, it's more around, um, have you done any capital calls? That's what everyone wants to know. So you see investors shifting their uh, focus, just like, you know, family offices, you know, do to not just how much this deal is generating, because before that, it's um, I, I feel that investors were focused on where can I get the most out of my, you know, wh where is my dollar going to turn into? Is this dollar going to turn into a dollar ninety, a dollar seventy, dollar sixty? So they were really, really focused on the um, projected returns but right now investors are more focused on who is communicating well and who is doing um who has done capital calls so um thankfully we haven't done any capital calls and we're not planning on doing them um but it's it's something that investors are really focused on whether um you know, they, they wanted to invest with someone that has not gone through, you know, that process. And, and we talked about capital calls, you know, on our last episode. So if you want to, you know, tune in and, and learn more about it, you can definitely do so. Um, I think it's a good segue to talk about a different asset class, which is office. Um, and we've been hearing a lot. We personally don't buy, you know, office, but we've been hearing and reading a lot um, about the distress in that market and really covid um, shifted things for this industry. There's a lot of groups that are working, you know, remote. We're working remote um, twice um, a week. Uh, and this is where we're uh, recording the podcast. Three times a week, we're in the office. Um, but many companies scale down, either transition to full, uh, fully remote or partially remote. So they, didn't, they don't need um, a large office. Some companies, you know, closed, closed up shop. So we see um, big players, um, essentially, you know, companies that run, that manage billions on, they have billions on their management. They're just deciding to turn the keys back to the lender. There, it's it's a it's a it's a conscious decision, calculated decision, where they're looking at the financials and they say, you know, I know that some funds marked there. Uh, office valuation down by 50%. And they're saying it's just, it's not worth it to keep paying, um, you know, the the mortgage kind of like 2008 with single family homes. And um, I saw some deals that are converted, um, that are converting, raising money to convert office space into uh, condos or apartment buildings. It's a little bit hard to do and it's more expensive. Um, 
but you know the delinquency for office you know is is you know it, it was it was about you know five percent which is back in july 2023 it's the highest since december of 2021 so um and and by the end of 2022 this rate you know increased by more than 350 uh you know bips and so um, there's, there's a lot of distress in the office market. Um, we stayed focused on multifamily. I think the demand, the demand just got stronger. Um, the debt could be challenging, but the basics, the demand drivers, people wanting to lease uh, and rent apartments now, even more than ever that they don't go to the office, then they want to be, uh, to rent an apartment that is renovated, that is close to, uh, you know, shopping areas and, and, um, and uh, restaurants. Uh, so the demand just increased. I think office is kind of the flip side of of um, of that. Um, curious to hear what you guys think about you know office, how you see it, because I know some of our investors are investing in office uh, through other sponsors and other companies. Um, and it's 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 not it's not pretty right now. It's it's I don't remember you know I'm 41 years old. Um, I, it's not like I've been investing since I was five years old, but in all of my life, you know, time, I don't remember ever seeing companies um, just returning the keys to lenders voluntarily. So just, you know, curious to, to hear what you guys think about um, office investment. Yeah, you know, I'm happy to touch on that a bit because I have to say that this just blows my mind. You know, to, to me, if we were to default on a property, I would just be devastated, right? Like I can't imagine. And these are major firms. So, I mean, to put it, you know, very candidly, when you say they're just giving back the keys, it's they're literally defaulting on these properties. These huge firms decide this isn't profitable enough. We're just going to stop paying. We're going to default. And somehow they can go ahead and absorb all the consequences of a default, even though when you think about it from a reputational standpoint against their brand and also, you know, how much their investors lose out when that happens, it, it's just mind blowing to me that that's what we're actually seeing in the market. And I think that this is what adds to investor sentiment being a little bit jittery, a little bit concerned, because, you know, you see a lot of drama, you know, in this particular area of real estate, and people start to fear that it's going to somehow spread over like a contagion, like COVID. Um, you know, and of course, they're two total, it's not apples to oranges by any stretch of the imagination, but it is very interesting to see what's happening in the market. And it's unfortunate for, you know, those investors that have invested pretty heavily in office. And I think it just kind of reinforces what we all know, which is, you know, this is one of the many reasons why it's important to have a diversified portfolio, because you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket so that if things do struggle in one regard, you know, you're, you're evening out hopefully on the other. Um, but I mean, honestly, it's just crazy to me. I was reading that, you know, that the rate for office properties has increased by more than 350 bits since the end of 2022. Today is September 21st. So it's not even a full year. And I mean, it's just taken a pounding. Ryan, what do you see? Yeah, for, first, I, Ellie, I didn't know you were 21 today and you've been investing since you were five. Um, but <laughs> oh, no, I, I said 41. Did I, I say 21? I'm joking. I, I can't believe you revealed your age. You're not a joke. I don't want to my age. That's totally fine. I've earned every every number I've earned. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
blood and tears. So, but one, one thing, so uh, I'm going to speak to both your points and I'm going to try not to jump around too much because there's a lot of topics that I, I think of that come to mind when, when talking about office foreclosures. So first, Ellie, your point on um, the, the office landscape changing, which, which ultimately kind of shifted the way um, employees work, right? So we, we benefited from that as class B owner operators in, in major metros outside in the suburbs that not necessarily your core downtown locations. We benefited from that because we saw increased demand as people started to migrate further away from the city. So as you mentioned, we're in the, we're in the office three days a week, those other two days. So uh, in my opinion, I am more than comfortable living an extra 15, 20 minutes out further to have more space, a higher quality of life, access to that retail that you mentioned and entertainment um, to, to only commute three days a week and, and absorb that commute, not every single day. So the quality of life has changed and, and really um, changed the way consumers uh, kind of behave in, in that regard. So that's one thing is it benefited the class B suburban office, uh, suburban multifamily owner operators with increased demand. Um, but then also you, you guys mentioned on the foreclosures of, of some of these larger groups like RXR and, and Columbia Property Trust. And a lot of things I read is some of it's intentional. Some of it's, hey, we're, we're going to hand the keys over because we don't have the balance sheet, balance sheet to support the debt. Whereas some of these other large groups what they're doing is they're giving the keys back and in, in, in influencing or trying to use their influence to see, will there be loan extensions? Will there be government intervention? Will somebody bail us out? Because think, think about it from the bank's perspective. If you owe the bank $100,000, you're at their mercy. They're coming for their 100000 You owe them $100 million. The, the roles have kind of shifted. You, you now have the influence because they want their capital back, but you're telling them, I can't afford your debt anymore because we're, we're seeing fundamental issues in the industry and vacancy rates are, are increasing and I can't, I can't afford to keep the lights on. Um, so it's, it's a kind of a chicken or the egg in some instances where you, you see some of these groups trying to kind of play their cards and, and see who will intervene. So it's, it's, it's interesting from that perspective to see kind of how things will, will play out. But that, that's what I've, I've read a lot about in the office space. And the other issue is it's the, the valuations are just being absolutely destroyed because you have, you have lower rent growth, you have higher vacancy in, in, that that's ultimately where the value is in the commercial space. So a lot of these, these larger groups are starting to kind of uh, reallocate and, and liquidate their office space. So one example is, is um, uh, JP Morgan. So the leadership group in, I think it was the middle part of 2021 said by the end of this year, we anticipate our office presence to be exactly what it was pre pandemic. Um, and now fast forward a year and a half later into 2023 and the JP Morgan reduced their uh, Manhattan footprint by 20%. So you, you can clearly see technology in, in the way the, the global pandemic kind of um, forced em employers to kind of react to these changing conditions um, is relatively permanent now. So it's, it's that, that's kind of my high level uh, perspective of, of the office space. It's, it's a tough, um, tough market right now. You know, I touch on that too, because one of the things that a lot of investors keep asking me is like, well, why don't we recognize this as an opportunity, go and start scooping up office space and then renovate it to be multifamily? And the answer, I mean, there's a lot of answers, but I'm going to give like the most simplest answer ever is toilets. It is toilets. So a lot of people don't realize that 
if you think about the way, you know, an office building is laid out, yes, you've got a lot of little offices, but where's the plumbing? Where are the toilets? And, you know, unless people want to be in what's almost like a co-living situation where maybe they have individual units, but then they have like a community bathroom, which I don't think anyone's too, you know, super excited about that idea, probably. Um, that's one of the biggest challenges for going in and renovating these, you know, opportunity office areas and office spaces. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, that's not something that we're pursuing. I, a lot of people don't realize how incredibly expensive it would be to see that as an opportunity and capitalize on it. Is it there? Absolutely. But it's very complicated and it's a really heavy lift. Yeah. I, you know, there's um, a colleague of mine, a sponsor, um, that what they do is they essentially buy failing um, motels and they convert them into, um, uh, you know, apartment buildings um, or, or units, essentially. So if you think about it, motels, they, you know, you can convert them into small studio rooms because they have the bathroom and, and the kitchenette and everything there. Um, so you you can buy them at a lower, you know, a building at the lower valuation um, because it's struggling. It's, you know, not stabilized and, and the cap rates are much higher in the hotel industry. Um, but the challenge is that you're competing, even if you renovate and then the apartment is, you know, the studio is gorgeous. You're competing with other apartment buildings that actually have amenities. So they have a pool, they have a gym. Um, which some of it the motel may have, but it's it, it's it's not as nice. Some, not all all of them have, and those who do have it, um, you know, you're you're kind of missing a lot of the aspects. You know, the open green area, the uh, you know um, uh, the dog park and and the children's you know playground. You have you're actually it's not just enough to give someone a small unit. People are looking for amenities. They're looking for other other things to enrich their you know their experience, um, and it's it's kind of hard to find that. That's one of the reasons why it's harder, you know, if you own an eleven unit building, that building is probably not gonna have all the amenities that a hundred and fifty, two hundred, four hundred unit complex across you know down the road has so you're competing with them so it's not just you know looking at how much you can rent because you know th there's there's value to have all those you all, all the amenities that um that conversion you know projects and smaller multifamily just don't have so that's something uh to keep in mind um but you know i i'm still i i do believe that there's uh opportunity in the office market we're just it's not our core you know expertise i do think that companies are going to go back i think the demand is going to go back and it's going to be in san francisco uh, but it's just not you know it's not our core you know uh, expertise and focus so we're staying in our lane we're focused on multifamily that's what we know how to do and we love it um, for many reasons so um that concludes the conversation about um you know office um and, and you know i want to kind of switch to uh talk about a little bit of you know angel investing in vc world which is also a little bit of my world um when i'm not at blue lake but uh we're gonna hear that uh, right after the break Ready to Scale is brought to you by Blue Lake Capital, where we hunt down the best multifamily investment opportunities that we can find and invite investors to join in with us. 
We target Class B value-add multifamily properties across the Sunbelt. Our CEO, Ellie Perlman, invests a substantial amount of capital into every deal. This means our interests are aligned with yours. If you're an accredited investor looking to expand your portfolio and diversify sponsors, be sure to visit us at bluelake-capital.com. Blue Lake Capital. Be bold, be extraordinary, and keep moving forward. All right. So to the last third and last topic um, of today's podcast, um, uh, we, you know, I want to talk about um, VC angel investing. And the reason why I want to branch a little bit outside of real estate is because, um, A, we have investors that not only invest with us, but also invest um, as angel investors. Um, and also, you know, I'm a minority stakeholder in the VC um, in Israel. And so it's it's an, a personal interest um, of mine. And of course, it's, you know, it's really, really interesting what's going on um, in, in the VC world, um, the world of angel investing. It's, it's like night and days. Um, uh, you know, VC funding uh, dropped um, over 50% year over year. Um, and it's, you know, the, right now it's around 76 billion. It's the lowest quarterly um, total since, you know, Q, since the third quarter fourth quarter of 2020. Um, you know, the main reason is that valuations um, are, are down. So um, you have, um, you know, you have a lot of companies that are actually waiting to IPO, take, you know, the company public. It's not, it's not being done, you know, just yet. And it, the feeling was that when COVID hit, um, VCs were really hungry and investing right and left. And many times due diligence was maybe not done, uh, you know, thoroughly and investors were just itching, were itching to invest in, um, in startups and, and deploy capital and under, you know, what I think was very, and it's easy to say, you know, uh, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, but uh, really inflated valuations. And now it's more of a reality check um, because the, you know, software, the valuation of software um, as a whole is, you know, is is lower than it was years ago, um, and that impacts, um, you know, the valuation of of a startup. There were, I believe, it was in twenty twenty one, there were sixty unicorns and it's it's a huge number um this year we're not even getting close to that and in july there were two um probably august was zero so it's it, the number is very low and it looks like right now things are a little bit more um uh you know a bit it, they've slowed down uh and they're more realistic and investor sentiment um, is very different. So, you know, when I'm looking at investors in the VC world and, you know, angel investors versus uh, real estate, um, on both sides, investors have decreased their investments. They're more cautious. They're uh, looking at things a bit more closely. Um, usually investors, you know, the operational of real estate investors, uh, family offices and ultra high net worth, they're usually the ones that are investing in um, in startups and involved with the, with the VC, you know, in the VC world. So they're still they're still investing. They're so bullish. You're not sitting on piles of, of money 
like institutions, and, and I'm happy to talk about why uh, that is. And in, in one sentence, it's because family offices are making their own decisions and uh, in deploying capital, and they're willing they're willing to take you know the risk, and that's why they've built a tremendous amount of wealth by making um, by feeling comfortable taking a risk. Um, institutions, you know, the money there is managed by people who are, you know, getting a salary and, and they want to be, they want to make sure that they're not screwing things up. Um, and also there's a lot of regulation that comes, uh, you know, in, in, that isn't that institutions are involved with. So it's a little bit harder to take risks. It's a little bit harder to make investment decisions in today's, um, you know, world, but, um, you know, software deals we'll go back to, to VC, the deals dropped, you know, 23%. Um, and it's, it, we definitely see a slowdown. Um, it's harder to raise money from investors for, um, for VC, for angel investing. Um, you know, I, I'm still investing, um, as, you know, as an angel investor, uh, a little bit slower than, than a year ago and two years ago. Um, and I think, you know, right now things are a bit more sane where, you know, valuation is based on actual, um, you know, per, actual metrics, actual income. So I, I have a story to tell you. And um, when I was at MIT, uh, I actually uh, worked as a COO um, for uh, a startup and we were raising money from, um, from VCs, the company, I think we were about 35 people. So we grew really quickly. And um, the company did not have any income. The product was not out. Um, it was done. We, we had something to show to, to the VCs, but the product was not out there. We're not getting paid. There was no income. And in a sense, it, it was back then easier to raise money based on zero income because you're essentially selling the vision, selling the dream, selling the potential. Once there's income, it's actually a little bit harder to raise money because unless you're really growing, because you actually need to show the growth of the projections that the projections actually, you know, that that they're they're real. And I remember that the CEO told me, you know. It's much easier to raise when you don't have a product, which I, I found, you know, it 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 was such a, an amazing moment for me to understand it. And it's so different if you compare it to real estate um, because you have to have a product and you can see the growth. You can see the financials. They're there. Um, you know, we have a fund, the Blue Lake Multifamily Fund, and we buy the fund is open. We're buying assets um, and, you know, we have our first asset in, in the fund already um, in Arizona it was an off market deal. Um, and we can't just raise money based on an idea. We have we have to have something, you know, an asset there. So I, I find it just um very interesting. Uh, that was a great experience, just understanding how, um, you know, large investors think what they're looking at. Um, and everyone wants, you know, to hear a good story. So it was, um, it was very interesting. But, you know, back to our point, um, there's, there's, um, the VC world is very different than it was a year or two years ago. Um, I think, you know, if we compared that 
to real estate, what you do get from real estate is there are two things that you don't really get uh, when you invest as um, as uh, an angel investor, and that is um, one is stability. So um, even if cash flow can fluctuate uh, from one month to another, you know what you're getting, you know what the product is producing, and you can understand it, and you have some more stability, you know, compared to just you know, investing in a stock market where, you know, you're, you know, the assets don't, at least multifamily valuations don't go up and down that dramatically like in the stock market. The other um, factor is uh, depreciation. And, you know, we're able to generate depreciation, um, which are losses on paper um, that can really dec decrease significantly or, or, eliminate capital gains tax on the income that is earned on real estate. And that's pretty unique. You don't really get it, um, you know, when you're investing as, as a VC or as an angel investor. Um, so I just find it interesting. Obviously, you know, the wealthier the family is, the wealthier the individual um, is, the the more likely they are to invest across the board between, you know, and allocate their funds between VCs, real estate, um, and, you know, fixed income and other um, investment vehicles. Um, but it's really interesting what's going on um, in, in the VC world. Um, I don't know if you guys, you know, wanted to, to chip in and what your thoughts, you know, that would, uh, would be great to hear it. You know, I actually listen to the Wall Street Journal every morning. They have a podcast um, called What's News. So a little plug for them. Not that they need my help, but, you know, uh, <laughs> maybe they'll return the favor. So, uh, you know, I listen to it every day and um, I really like tracking on VC investors because I do agree that if you see what their sentiment is like, it, it's a good indicator of, of, you know, very likely where we're going to see investor sentiment trend in one way or the another or another. And it does help show kind of the more immediate impacts of uh, economic conditions. And so, you know, I was thinking about um, Instacart. So, you know, Instacart went public this week and um, and it was a bummer, I'm sure, um, for a lot of their investors because their valuation dropped dramatically, painfully, which is further evidence of, you know, our inflationary environment that we're in and, you know, consumers probably pulling back. That's definitely a first place that you know, probably your average consumer is going to pull back instead of ordering, you know, Instacart, they're going to, you know, get up, drive to the store and go get it themselves. Right. Um, so it's, it's just interesting. I agree with you that, you know, the, the VC world is totally different than real estate there. You know, your traditional real estate investor is usually pretty different from a VC investor. Most VC investors, you know, expect that they may very well lose their money in like nine out of 10 deals, but they're banking on, you know, one of those deals, hopefully really, you know, succeeding. Um, but it is a good it is a good thermometer or gauge, if you will, uh, for, you know, how investors are feeling um, in, you know, the current market. So it's yeah, it's just it's a different world, but it's an interesting world. And uh, and, you know, and I hope that if there's any uh, Instacart investors out there, you know, that maybe maybe that little sting from uh, the lower lower valuation might motivate you to come over and check out our multifamily deals. <laughs> they can still make money. It doesn't mean that, that, you know, it's no, there's still money to be made for sure. The valuation just dropped down a lot, but it was actually interesting and exciting to watch, you know, what happened the first day that they went live, you know, IPO, um, because the valuation did shoot up. And by the end of the day, I think it had increased by, I think a good 14 bucks or something. Oh. Yeah. Jeanette, I, I, I still haven't yet to use Instacart. You've been all over me for the past. Uh, <laughs> it's great. 
Yeah, so maybe, maybe that's what I'll do. Maybe, maybe next week I'll support the cause and I'll give them some revenue and I'll try it out. But help, uh, people, help people out, Ryan. That's right. Yeah, I'm sure my hundred dollar purchase will really drive the stock price. But <laughs> uh, you know, I, I this is a world that I, I've never really lived in. Obviously, if you know any VCs that'll take my my last thousand bucks, I mean, you you'd be sure to let me know first. But uh, it, it is an interesting kind of what I, what I would define as investment vehicle, I, I guess, if you will, because it, it truly is. It's you, you both hit on some great points from from my understanding of the VC spaces. Um, the, the valuations are just coming down specifically in the tech se- sector because what, what the, the industry is starting to show signs of maturity with the exception. I do follow prop tech in the real estate space um, and real estate has, has tend to always kind of lagged other technology or, or other business to businesses and, and from a lot of different perspectives. I mean, look at revenue management. That that was recently adapted over the last 20 years, whereas that that was the, the backbone of the travel, leisure, hospitality industry for hotels, rental car and, and airlines. Uh, whereas the prop tech and the real estate spaces, everything was always re- based on renting four walls. Now things are getting a lot more complicated and technology is being leveraged, whether it's through AI or um creating more efficient processes or decent or centralization of, of leasing offices, um, smart home features, all, all things are pointing to a, a more sophisticated consumer that wants these technological advances. So I've seen prop tech really grow and be in continuously increase their values in, in the real estate space. But outside of that, what I've seen is over the last two decades, to your point, that the unicorns are, are, are diamonds in the rough or, or needles in the haystack are, are not as prevalent. Um, so it, it's difficult for VCs to kind of deploy in, in capital in a bunch of different avenues to hope that one of them will offset the losses from from the other investment. So it, it's high risk, high reward. And, and exactly what you said, it's it's different in multifamily. Multifamily is you see your 12 to 15 percent annualized returns because it's risk adjusted. Whereas in the VC space, you, you're not you, you're targeting for hundreds. Uh, you're targeting 100 times multiple on your, your equity because you don't know which one's going to stick. So it, it, it's really interesting to kind of see the way uh, the VC space is valued. And I think you brought up a great point. So back when I was getting um, my, my MBA, I, I actually started working with uh, my professor who owned a small business acquisition private equity firm and going out and buying deals at two to three times uh, pre-tax earnings. But that that was the acquisition space in the private equity because it was an established business. But to your point, Ellie, if, if you're pitching a, an idea, a concept that doesn't have ceilings, it doesn't have a defined market, who knows what somebody's willing to pay for those future earnings? And it's not even the future earnings. It's it's the revenue growth because you can't in the tech startup space, you're not generating a lot of profit. So how can you determine the profitability of the, the, the investment? You're looking at market share. You're looking at revenue growth and opportunity there, which um, it is just an interesting way to value. And it's so complex yet straightforward at the same time because you're, you're paying for future future cash flows and, and future revenue growth. So it's it's just, it's it's a, a unique perspective looking at the VC space, especially comparing to real estate. Yeah, absolutely. I can tell you that I'm, uh, the first thing that I'm looking at is the management team, their experience and how well they, they get along. It's not just the idea. A lot of it is execution and part of, uh, you know, an important ingredient in a successful ex- execution is a solid experienced management team. And that's, you know, that's what 
I'm looking at as, as an angel investor. Um, so I know it's been a, a bit of a, you know, we're talking about a variety of things. Um, we introduced a topic that is not real estate. I'm actually curious to hear from you, the listeners, if you want us to keep talking about VC um, or if you want to talk about any other um, non-real estate, um, you know, topics, just send us an email, info at bluelake-capital.com. Tell us what you think. Um, and if you enjoyed this conversation, please go to, um, uh, to any platform that, you know, you, uh, you're listening to, whether it's um, YouTube or um, uh, what is, I, I forget what is the, iTunes. how you, iTunes. Yes. Thank you. iTunes. Give us some love. Let us, yes. please, yeah. let us know what you think. So that way we can give people more of what they want, right? Yes. But, uh, write us a review. Uh, give us a rating. That means, you know, a lot to us. Um, we uh, we spend you know a lot of time and effort into thinking about what are the most interesting topics for our investors, what's going to add value to them. And we would love to hear, you know, um, what you think. So thank you so much uh, for tuning in. Um, and uh, Ryan, Jeanette, thank you for joining me. Um, we'll see you uh, guys in, uh, in a couple of weeks with uh, more interesting topics. And until then, be bold, be great. Keep moving forward and I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.